Let me introduce this morning's subject by talking about the riches that we have in Jesus Christ. You know, throughout the New Testament, we're told over and over and over again that there are riches in Christ. In the book of Ephesians, I think I counted at least five times where that phrase is found. And that might come as some surprise to some folks because, I, I don't know, a lot of times I hear Christians speaking of poverty as a virtue, as if it's something that God wants us to have. He wants us to be poor, that to be poor is uh, spiritually to be better than to be rich. But the Bible doesn't say that in any place. It does talk about the sin of corrupt riches, but it doesn't talk about money in and of itself being evil in any way. Money is neutral. It's all about how we use money. And poverty is presented in the Bible as a problem to be solved. You'll see laws in the law of Moses that are meant to help the poor, to address the problem of poverty, to alleviate suffering. And in the Psalms, you read these wonderful passages that say that God is the helper of the poor, that God saves the poor, that He delivers the poor, that He rescues the poor. Jesus told, himself, told His disciples to lay up for themselves treasures in heaven. And He said that we ought to be rich toward God. Luke chapter 12, verse 21. Paul spoke frequently of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. Verse 8. So there's so much wealth in Christ, you just can't get to the bottom of it. And so we shouldn't be surprised whenever we read in our text this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. A little background on this passage. There was a, a bad famine in Judea. And Paul was taking up a collection among the Gentile congregations to alleviate the suffering in the, in the places around Jerusalem. And in doing so, he was hoping that the Gentiles would recognize all the spiritual blessings that had flowed from Jerusalem to aid the Gentile congregations. And they, in turn, would benefit the Jewish congregations with material blessings. And in this sharing, he hoped to promote unity between those two ethnic sides of the church. And if they participated in this gift, Paul said that God would not only make them sufficient to participate in it, but he would reward them bountifully for their giving. And I believe the same words that Paul gives in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 apply to us today. God, is, God has blessed us. We have many things to be thankful for. And uh, here at Asheville Road, there are a lot of opportunities to help those who are in need. Uh, I've been a part, I've been privileged to be a part of planning for next year. And the leaders have put together a, a great plan for 2023. We plan on presenting that plan January the 8th. We hope everybody is back from their holiday travels by that point. We'll be able to talk about our budget and our goals for 2023. A lot of exciting things around the corner for this congregation. So it's time for us to start thinking about what we're going to give to the Lord next year. 
You know, if we start thinking about that after the new year, it's too late. We're already hitting the ground running. We need to start thinking about that now, making plans. What can we do together to do the Lord's work next year? And Paul's words to the Corinthians here will motivate us to do our very best. He says, there is a Christian bounty and there's a way to access that. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So as we talk about the Christian bounty from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, let's note in the first place the access to the bounty. And the access to the bounty in Paul's words from verse 6 comes through the act of sowing. He says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. So how does a farmer gain access to his crops? Well, first he has to sow the seed. And for Christians to gain access to the Christian bounty, we must sow seed as well. And you'll notice that the results come by degrees. The more you sow, the more you reap. It works the same way in agriculture. Now, what is he asking us to sow here? I think we can just be very plain about this. He's talking about money. He's talking about earthly wealth. He's talking about material blessings, sharing that with those who are in need. And I want to be very clear here. The bounty here is in response to material needs. This is not talking about what you must do to be saved, for example. There is a spiritual bounty to be had from obedience to the plan of salvation. So he's not talking about forgiveness of sins and an eternal inheritance to be had from from sowing your wealth. The subject here is material needs and material uh, blessings, sowing material wealth. And uh, that is a subject that is being treated here. If you look in verse 9, for example, he quotes from Psalm 112, which says, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. So Paul is talking here to them about helping the poor And he says in verse 10, it's through the church that God wants to provide the solution for poverty. Look at it. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. God always delights to bless the world through his people. He could shower groceries from heaven if he wanted to. He's done it before in the wilderness. He could do it today, but he wants to bless the world through the hands of his people. And that's what this passage is about. So keep that in mind. What is he asking us to sow? In particular, in this passage, he's asking us to sow our wealth in terms of sharing with others who are in need. Now, it matters how you sow. There's a lot in this passage about the quality of your sowing. So let's talk about that in three ways. He says you must sow in three particular ways, three qualities of sowing. Here's the first one. You must do it eagerly. He says that the Corinthians have been an example to others. If you look at verse 2 of 2 Corinthians 9, he says your zeal has stirred up most of them. They've been doing this zealously, which has made them an example. What is zeal? Zeal is eagerness, earnestness, enthusiasm, commitment. They were giving with all of those qualities, very eager to do so. He describes their zeal by way of contrast. Three times 
he sets up a contrast. Now look at this starting in verse 5. In verse 5 he says, I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. That's the first, first contrast. As a willing gift, not as an exaction. So he's saying literally here, not as covetousness, but as a blessing. Now look at the second contrast, verse 6. We've read this several times already. He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. So the second contrast is not sparingly, but bountifully. Verse 7, third contrast. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So the third contrast is don't give begrudgingly, but give cheerfully. And all of those contrasts are saying the same thing. They're saying, when you give, do so eagerly. Don't do it under compulsion or as taxation. Don't do it grudgingly. Be willing to do this. You shouldn't have to be begged and pleaded with in order to give the way that the Lord wants you to give. So that's the first quality of the sowing that results in reaping the bounty. Here's the second quality. Generally, uh, generously, you must give generously. Paul says the bounty we receive is given in proportion to the bounty we give. Isn't that what he's saying? Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. The bounty you receive is given in proportion to the bounty that you, that you sow. So it's about generosity. It doesn't have anything to do, by the way, about the amount of money that is given. A poor person can give just as generously as a wealthy person. It's, it's in terms of proportion and sacrifice and how much you are, are giving in proportion to what you, what you have. So don't worry unnecessarily about the amount. The question is, are you willing to make some sacrifices to God? Are you willing to be generous with your heart to others? And God will make you sufficient to do it. Uh, we shouldn't get anxious about giving. And, and worry that we've given too much. The Bible says here in verse 8 that God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. When God has work to be done, He makes sure that we are able to do it. What kind of God would ask us to do something we're unable to do? That's not the mercy of our God. He only asks us to do what we're willing to do, and He knows better than we what we can do. Now, too often we're like the little boy. He went off to kindergarten for the first day, and his mother gave him a dime, and she said, this is for you to buy some milk that goes with your lunch. So he came home, and she said, did you buy the milk for your lunch? And he started crying, and he said, no. They said it was five cents, and I only had ten cents. And that's how we are sometimes. God's asking for five cents and we say, well, I only have ten. God's saying, I will make you sufficient to do what I've asked you to do. You already have the ability. I know I created you. I've blessed you. I've given you all that you have. It belongs to me. I'm just asking you to manage it properly. And so generously, that's the second quality. The third quality is that we must sow purposefully. 
Now, there's a lot of organization in this collection that Paul is taking up, and I'm really impressed by it. When you look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, and you, you see how Paul is arranging for this contribution to the saints in Judea, you see a lot of organization, not the kind of organization we would expect in our chronological snobbery toward the ancient times, but back then they were very organized. They might not have had the technology that we have, but they were very organized in the way that they were taking up this collection. And I want you to look at this. There was planning involved. In verse 5, Paul and the others had arranged in advance for the gift. That's kind of like setting up a budget. We're arranging in advance for the work that we plan to do in 2023. So we set up a budget. It's a plan. It's not, you know, a guarantee of anything. We're just making plans and it may need to be adjusted as the year goes on and different needs present themselves. But that kind of planning is something we see exemplified here in this, in this passage. Secondly, you'll see there's promising involved. Because in verse 5, the Corinthians promised to give. Years ago, we used to do purpose cards about this time of the year to give the elders an idea of what we had planned to give in the coming year. We're not doing that now because, you know, as you use a method for several years, it kind of loses its effectiveness People lose their enthusiasm for it, and you have to change methods. And we saw the enthusiasm waning a little bit toward the purpose cards, so we started doing other things. But I think the concept behind a church promising to give for the next year is, has a scriptural basis right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 because you see them promising, Paul, we're going to do this. It's worth you coming down here and taking this collection because we are going to help the poor down in Judea. And then you see preparing. I think it's very interesting in verse 3 that Paul says, I'm going to send some men ahead of me to get you ready. Uh, we're not the only ones that experienced the second quarter lull. Okay? Uh, he knew that they had made a promise when they were very excited about things. There was a lot of zeal in the beginning. And human nature is for that to taper off. And he knew that they were probably losing their enthusiasm and they needed some preachers to go down there and stir them up to do what they had originally promised to do, to remind them about the need, to remind them and tell them what's been going on in Judea. And so he's going down there to, to prepare them. So what's missing here? They've got the planning, the promising, the preparing. What's missing is the purposing. You can't do those things without first making a decision in your heart to get involved in this and give. And so in verse 7 he says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart or purposed in his heart. Each one must do that. Not each church, but each individual Christian must give as he or she has first decided in their heart. You can't plan promise, prepare, or even perform without purposing. So my question to you is, have you even thought about what you're going to give on a weekly basis, on a regular basis next year? It's time to be thinking about that. We are planning to do more. I don't know if you've been watching the news or going to the grocery store. Things cost more now. We're going to need more, and the more we give, the more work we can do. And so I would like to ask you to sit down with your family and think about giving more next year. 
and doing more. God will make you sufficient to do it. If He's really blessed you this year, and many of us can say that He has, then think about adding to your contribution for next year. Make the plan now. If you don't make the plan now, you're not going to be doing it next year. The more we plan and purpose, the more we can do. So this is the sowing that results in the bounty. This is how you access it. You sow your wealth eagerly, generously, and purposefully. Let's go in the second place to the nature of the bounty. And this is something I really want to, to pay close attention to. Because sometimes we, we mistake the nature for the bounty. And uh, I, wa I want to start by looking at the, the number of passages that make the promise that we found in the text in verse 6. These are passages that say, if you give, God will give back to you. Or to put it simply, you can't outgive God. Okay, so we've looked at verse 6 several times. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Here are some other passages that say the same thing. Uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Uh, Proverbs chapter 11, verses 24 and 25. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched. And one who waters will himself be watered. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. And then Proverbs 28, verse 25. A greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no need. And then finally, the words of the Lord in Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So this is not a game like football or baseball or basketball, where you win by gaining points. This is, if you use a game analogy, more like dominoes or Scrabble. You win by losing. Okay, you, you don't want to wind up. The, the more you give up, the more you get. That's how this works, using a game analogy. It goes straight to the heart of the cross, which says the greatest glory is in sacrifice. The greatest glory is in sacrifice. So this is all about sacrificing to God. And in exchange, God says, I will reward you. But how does he reward us? Let's talk about this. Most of the time we interpret these passages that I just looked at, including 2 Corinthians 9, 6, to say, you give money to God, and God will give more money back to you. I had a Bible professor that um, seemed to have an extreme idea of this interpretation. Uh, he told us that whenever he and his wife got into hard times, they would just raise their contribution a little bit. And they always seemed to have enough. Now, I'm not saying that the Lord wasn't blessing him materially for 
raising his contribution. But I'm saying that kind of calculus is not what God has in mind here, which is, I want more money, so I'm going to give more money, and I'll be guaranteed a higher paycheck, a bigger bonus, millions of dollars in the bank account. Here, here's a couple of problems with that interpretation. Problem number one, if we're not careful we can, and we interpret these passages just in a monetary sense, we might turn this into a get-rich-quick scheme, which is exactly what the prosperity preachers do on television. You've seen them do it. You know, I have this great jet and a mansion because I gave to God. And so you give to me and you'll get rich. No, he has the jet because these people got duped by him in sending him money. And they're getting poorer because they're not giving to the Lord, they're giving to a fraud. Now, we have to be very careful. This is not a get-rich-quick scheme. That's not what was going on there. Uh, you know, nowhere do, do these passages promise a material blessing. The closest we come to it is Proverbs 3, 9 and 10, which we read a moment ago, which says, Your barns will be full and your vats bursting with wine. If you want to take that literally, I hope you have a barn or a vat, because that's how you take it literally. Otherwise, you'll be interpreting it figuratively, even if you're thinking in terms of dollars and cents. So first of all, we have to be careful about a super literal interpretation that results in some kind of calculus where we give money and we get a bigger bank account. The second problem with that monetary interpretation is if we limit the Christian bounty to money, we miss out on even greater blessings. Blessings that are so much more than material wealth. I'm talking about friendship. I'm talking about love. I'm talking about the joy of giving. I'm talking about knowing that you're a part of something bigger than yourself. A higher purpose. I'm talking about righteousness. All these things are worth so much more than money. And we know this. Think about the rich young ruler. This is a good example. The rich young ruler wanted to know what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus told him to keep the commandments. He said, I've been doing this since my youth. So Jesus said, there's one thing you lack. Luke chapter 18, verse 22. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. In other words, sow. That's what we've been talking about. Sell all you have, distribute to the poor. And then he says, you will reap bountifully. But here's how he puts it to the rich young ruler. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now the rich young ruler didn't want to do that. And do you remember the explanation? He went away sorrowful because he was extremely wealthy. That means he understood treasure in heaven in terms other than monetary wealth. Treasure in heaven to him did not equate a bigger bank account or even barns being full or vats bursting with wine. He knew it meant that he would have a lot less material wealth than he had before he followed Jesus. Still, Jesus was promising that he would reap bountifully. So he must have been talking about riches other than material riches, riches greater than material riches. Now, in the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 9, what's the nature of the bounty? Let's look at it. Three things he says that tells us that it's more than material wealth. 
in verse 10, he says, Righteousness, uh, that is aligning oneself with God, results from this kind of giving. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. That's verse 10. Then look at verse 12. He talks about it again. And in verse 12, he seems to be talking about the joy of seeing God meet people's needs. For the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. And then when you look at verse 14, he seems to be talking about the love and affection of God's people. Look at it. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. These are not passages about them getting richer, materially speaking. It's about blessings that are greater than that. Joy and love and being able to share and see God's people do great things in the world and make life better for so many people. Being a part of a, a higher purpose, the righteousness of God. That's what these passages are about. And we've, we've all been on this earth long enough to know that wealth alone is not enough to make people happy. To know the truth of Luke chapter 12, verse 15, that one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So think about it. What's better than getting a good night's sleep? Or knowing that if you ever got into trouble, financial or otherwise, that you have a spiritual family that will be there for you and supply whatever you need. What's better than having the peace of Christ in your soul that brings calm even in the face of, of great danger, even in the face of death? What's better than being a part of something that's bigger than your own selfish ambitions, seeing real needs being met because of your contributions? What's better than having others pray for you? What's better than belonging to a group of people who long to spend time with you, who like being around you? You know, those are things that I count as more important than money. And so let's not limit the nature of the Christian bounty to dollars and cents and turn God's promises into a get-rich-quick scheme. Let's not be so materialistic and limit His blessings because there's so many great riches to be found in Christ. Okay, in the third place, let's talk about the source of the bounty. Paul mentions God's grace toward the Corinthians in verse 14, which we read just a minute ago which leads him to exclaim at the end of this chapter in verse 15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. He's talking here about Jesus Christ. Now, why end this lengthy discussion on giving with the cross? It starts, by the way, in chapter 8, verse 1. This is the longest section on giving that I know of in, in the Bible. Two chapters devoted to this subject. And it ends with, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Earlier he wrote this. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Why does he keep bringing Jesus' death on the cross up when he's talking about collecting a contribution for the poor in Judea. It's just this. The source of our giving is God's greatest gift. 
In other words, the cross is the divine gift that inspires all other gifts. Jesus is the source of the bounty that we're talking about here. And that's why we consider giving a part of worship. Just a few moments ago, we prayed for the gifts that we give on the first day of every week. We include it as a part of our worship, one of the authorized expressions of worship that we do every first day of the week. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 18, Paul describes the giving of the Philippians in terms of a fragrant offering. Now that phrase is used only in connection with the sacrifices of the Old Testament. It is a, an offering that is pleasing to God. It's worship. Why is it worship? Because it's a, it's a response to what God has done by grace through Jesus Christ and how he's made it possible for us to be forgiven of sin. And he calls it inexpressible. Why do you think he uses that adjective? Why do you think he says that God's gift of his son is inexpressible? I think there are several reasons. For example, no one can fully understand and explain why Jesus' blood can be substituted for our own in forgiveness of sins. I mean, why, why does that substitution work? Jesus' blood for our own. We can talk about substitutionary sacrifices and redemption, and those concepts help, but would you ever accept the blood of your son in exchange for someone else's who deserved to die? That's inexpressible. It's inexpressible also because no one can express fully the nature of the precious being who died for us, the God-man, Jesus Christ. There's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. Explain that to me. How can there be one who is both divine and human at the same time? And yet, it had to be so. Because there's no one who can make satisfaction except God. We in our sins were powerless. So only God could make satisfaction, but the only sacrifice that would be acceptable for the human race would be a human being. God could not die for the sins a human must die for. And it's only in the God-man, Jesus Christ, that these, this, this uh, reconciliation or redemption can be made possible. That's the argument of a, a medieval theologian named Anselm, and no one's improved on it since him, in my opinion. And yet, after you roll it all out and you think about 1 Timothy 2.5, it's still inexpressible. We can't get to the bottom of it with our words and our finite minds. It's inexpressible because no one can express the full nature of the gifts that come through us, to us through Jesus Christ. We take them for granted because we can't discern their length and their breadth. I mean, just tell me how great it is to be forgiven of your sins. You can use every word in the dictionary and you'll never get to the bottom of it. Not until you know the, the disaster and the the destruction and the devastation of hell and eternal punishment, will you understand the wonder and the beauty of the forgiveness of sins? You can't express it. Furthermore, no one can express how it's possible for an omniscient God who knows all to be able to promise in the new covenant the promise of Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, which says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and their sins 
will I remember no more. How, God? How can you forget my sins and be the omniscient being that you are all at the same time? We can't express that. And even in the moments of worship, when we're able to begin to sense the joy and the peace that we have in Jesus Christ, even in those minutes, Peter says that joy is inexpressible and full of glory. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. And so it is a bounty that we cannot express. The source of the bounty, the cross of Jesus Christ. A story says that a uh, long time ago when microwave ovens were first coming on the market, a son bought his parents their first microwave oven for Christmas. And he plugged it in for them and went home. And the father got the directions out. He read the directions. He tried to use it, but he couldn't even boil a cup of water. He couldn't figure it out. And so a couple days later, the mother was telling her friends about this gift that they received. I got this microwave oven, it is so nice. And she said, you know, our son was very generous in buying it for us, but my husband can't seem to get it to work. And uh, she said, I really don't need better directions. What I need is my son to come along with the gift. Have you ever felt that way? You get something from your children, some technology, and uh, your children go home and you can't get the thing to work. And you think, well, I wish they would have just stuck around a little while and given themselves along with the gift so we could use it. She said, I just wish I'd had my son along with the gift. Well, God did even better than that. He didn't just send his son along with the gift. He sent his son as the gift. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Now, if you're looking for motivation to give... If you're looking for motivation to increase your contribution and do more work for the Lord next year, that's where it is. That's the source of the bounty. Ashville Road has really been blessed. We have so many opportunities this coming year. It's been exciting to talk with the deacons and elders about what we're able to do, what the Lord is, the doors the Lord has opened in front of us. And we need to do much with those opportunities. What will we do for God next year? What will Ashville Road do for the Lord? And the same way to ask that is to ask this. What will you do for the Lord next year? Because the church is made up of individual people. And you are those people. And so it do, it's better to ask the question this way. Not just what will this church do for the Lord, but what will I do for the Lord next year? I want to ask you to think about that and pray about that and have a conversation with your family about what you can do. And remember, God will make you sufficient to do it. He's given His Son for you. How much is it for Him to ask you to give back to Him? And remember, there are riches in Christ that can be accessed through giving this way. A Christian bounty awaits you. Of course, before the bounty comes, we must give our lives to God. That's the most important gift. Jesus died for you, and he says, if you'll come to me and you give your life to me and you trust me for all, if you obey the gospel, if you're baptized and, and you rise out of those waters in newness of life and walk with me, you'll have an eternal inheritance, forgiveness of sins, 
That's where it all starts. Have you started down that road? Have you given God your life first? Then you give the rest. If not, we can help you with that this morning. We'd love to be able to help you with that. We have a song of invitation that we want to encourage you with. And if we can help you, please come right now as we stand together and as we sing.